When I was in high school, my, I was on my school soccer team. And I told you all before that I played a really important position on the team. If I did not fulfill my role each game, then the wooden bench on the sideline would get cold. And that was, uh, that was my job on the team. I remember my sophomore year, it was towards the end of our season. We were playing in this really big district game. And I was sitting in my spot towards the end of the bench with the other sophomores. We were onlookers. You know, we didn't get in varsity games. We didn't expect to get in varsity games as sophomores. So we're watching and talking and kind of goofing off. And all of a sudden, in the last few minutes of the game, the coach looks down at us, which was unusual. And he yells out the name of one of my friends, another sophomore. And he says, hey, let's go. I want you to sub in at midfield. And we were surprised. What? What's going on? We were really excited for him. You know, my friend had been playing really well in practice. He had improved a lot. And he got his shot. So he subbed into the game. And we now we were paying attention, right? We were locked in. We're cheering him on. And then the last minute of the game, it was tied up. And my friend was standing right there at the top of the box. He got a clean look. He took the pass, took the shot, and he scored. And everyone went crazy. It was this big celebration. It was so surprising because the, the sophomore who was so inexperienced came in off the bench. He subbed in, and he saved the game. He went on to play a really big role on our team. By the time we were seniors, he was the best player on our whole team. And it all started that one night with that substitution. The idea of substitution, we know, is very important for our faith. In fact, it's crucial. It's essential to what we believe. It's been said that the entire Christian message can be summed up in this one simple phrase, Jesus in my place. Jesus was our substitute. He lived and died and rose for us. And that act of substitution was demonstrated most clearly and most powerfully in one particular event, the cross. It's one of the first things we learn about as a kid, isn't it? We learn that, that sentence, Jesus died for you. And for many of us, that's basic. It's familiar. It's, it's so familiar that if you've been a Christian for a long time like I have, it might even ring hollow. Like, yeah, duh. Jesus died for me. Of course Jesus died for me. <laughs> but therein lies the danger. That the cross might become so familiar to us that it loses its power and significance in our lives. That we might forget how radical and scandalous that event truly was. I mean, think about it. We, we have cross necklaces on. We have crosses on the walls of our homes. We have crosses on top of our church buildings. We kind of just get used to it. And so we hear the preacher say, today we're going to talk about the cross. And we think, okay, well, this is for those people who don't know about that or maybe who are new to church. I already know all about the cross. I've heard it many times. I don't need this. But here's the truth. We cannot get over what Jesus did on the cross. We cannot hear enough sermons on the cross. We cannot allow this moment in history to become basic or familiar or even worse, boring. Paul, when he wrote to the Corinthian church, he said in 1 Corinthians 2, and I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Remember, Paul wrote to Christians. This is the church, and he says, when I came to see you, I decided to talk about the cross and nothing but the cross. 
that was his repeated message to Christians. We need to hear about the cross often. We need to think about the cross regularly. So we're going to do that again today. We're going to look at the cross from a bit of a different angle. We're going to look at the cross from the perspective of 700 years before it ever happened. It comes from an Old Testament passage that is very likely one that Paul used himself when he preached Jesus and him crucified. We can feel pretty confident in that because this is the passage that the New Testament writers used over and over to, again to explain what Jesus had done. They use these verses so many times it's referenced in these New Testament books. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, 1 Timothy, Titus, Hebrews, 1 Peter, and 1 John. So these Old Testament verses really form the basis for the early Christians' understanding of the cross and what Jesus did when he died. And if you were here last week, you know the, the verses I'm talking about are called the Servant Song. It's the fourth Servant Song in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah prophesied to the nation of Israel in one of their lowest points in history. They were about to be judged, and he spoke to them about that. But all along, he also pointed them forward to this figure he called the servant of the Lord, the Messiah, someone who would come and save them. But we established last week that this Messiah figure, who they knew would be a king and a warrior and a leader, Isaiah said something kind of strange about him. Yes, he would be exalted like God, but first, he was going to be humiliated like no one else in human history had ever been. Isaiah showed us in the first verses of this song that the servant would be a man of sorrows. He would be rejected and despised by his own people. And we established that Jesus fit that bill completely. Jesus lived a life of suffering from beginning to end. And he did it all that he might know our pain and take it upon himself to bring us life. So this morning as we continue walking through this servant song, we will focus on the culmination of that suffering, which was the cross. Would you please stand with me this morning as we honor the reading of God's word? Isaiah chapter 53, verses 4 through 6. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Let's walk through this text together and we'll come in at the end and apply it. In three ways. But notice with me first, this section begins with the word surely. Isaiah used that word to point us to something strange, something unexpected. He's just finished describing how the suffering servant is going to be a man of sorrows. He's going to be rejected and despised. So our initial thought from that might be, man, how bad is this guy going to be? Man, what bad things is he going to do where people are going to treat him in that way and reject him in that way? But Isaiah wants to make clear that that's not the case at all. Look, verse 4, he says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. The suffering servant suffers not because of himself or because of anything he's done, but he suffers because of us. 
He's despised and rejected. He's a man of sorrows because he's carrying our griefs and our sorrows himself. And here we see that key idea of substitution. The servant taking something we have and putting it on himself. In this case, it's our griefs and sorrows. Those two words refer to the effects of sin. We live in a fallen, broken world. As a result, we experience grief. We feel sorrow. This word grief can also mean weakness and tiredness. This word sorrow can also mean pain. So this is describing this this whole sensation of, of feeling the weight of this broken world. And we know this personally. If you have lived on this planet any amount of time at all, you've felt the weight of grief and sorrow. Relationship issues, medical issues, financial issues, loss of a loved one. Fear, worry, loneliness, depression, anxiety, bodies that bruise, souls that ache. So many things go wrong and break in our world. But notice what Isaiah prophesied that the servant who we now know as Jesus took those very pains upon himself. It reminds me of of high school. When we were in high school, whenever a guy would have romantic interest in a girl, one sure way you could tell is that he would carry her backpack for her. (laughs) Did that happen when you were in high school? Do you remember that? I don't know if guys still do that today, but if we saw a guy carrying his backpack and a girl's backpack, that was a telltale sign that he was really crushing bad, okay? That's the image here of Jesus bearing and carrying. He took our griefs and sorrows off of us and placed them on his own back. He personally experienced pain and sadness and the broken of the world, brokenness of the world for us that one day we might live in a place where those things will be no more because he has taken them away. Do you long for that day? Where not only sin will be gone, but all of sin's effects will go with it. All the pain, all the sorrow, all the weariness of this life will be no more because of what Jesus did. He took it himself. And yet, notice how we respond. Look at the rest of verse 4. It says, yet we, ex- we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Now, these are the same words used in the Old Testament to describe someone being stricken with leprosy or cursed by a disease, by a plague. Isaiah predicted that people would look at the servant and esteem him or consider him to be cursed by God. They would see the difficulty, the rejection he faced, and assume that it was because of something he did himself. They think, oh, well, it must be his fault that he's going through this. And we know that's, that's what happened. Jesus was crucified because the Jewish leaders charged him with blasphemy. To claim to be God was the highest offense in that day. It was punishable by death. So the Jewish leaders labeled him a criminal worthy of death. They brought him before the courts. They passed him around from trial to trial. And eventually, as Jesus stood before Pilate, they convinced the people that he was stricken by God and deserved to die. And they crucified him. But they were wrong. Here's what they missed. Here's what they couldn't see that we see now. Look at verse 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. The servant Isaiah was speaking of would not be punished by God for his own sins, 
It might look that way from the outside. People were going to think that way, but he was actually being punished for our sins. Just notice the pronouns in this one verse. He was pierced. He was crushed. Upon him was the chastisement with his wounds. The servant, it's clear, is the one who is suffering. He's the one being harmed, but look at what it says. And yet it's our transgressions, our iniquities. He brought us peace. We are healed. Do you see that substitution that's taking place? This is the big point here in this section of the song. Jesus took our place. He for we. Him for us. Jesus for me. But how did he do it? How did exactly this happen to Jesus? Well, Isaiah predicted the way he would suffer. And the words Isaiah used are really fascinating. They're much more significant than I think even Isaiah knew at this time. Think about this. Isaiah did not know about the cross. The people of Israel had no concept of their Messiah being murdered. It's likely that crucifixion had not even been invented yet. This would have been totally foreign and confusing. Yet what's going to happen to the servant is clear. First we see he would be pierced. That word in Hebrew means to wound fatally. Next, we see he would be crushed. That word was used to describe someone being trampled to death or beat down to the point of death. He would be chastised. That means he'd be punished. He would have wounds, which referred to open lacerations. So Isaiah is prophesying here the servant's going to be killed in a brutal way by others as a punishment. And we know that's exactly what happened. Gospels tell us that Jesus was pierced. They drove nails through his hands and his feet. They stuck a spear through his side into his heart. We know he was crushed by the weight of the cross, by blows and punches to his face and his body. We know he was wounded as they whipped him with long strands of leather, with, with pieces of glass or bone or metal attached to the end. They were designed to dig into the flesh and rip it off the back. The death of Jesus was, was torturous and brutal beyond comprehension, and yet Isaiah predicted it would happen exactly this way, and the gospel shows he was right. Jesus died as predicted. Here's the next question, why? Why did this happen to this man? Well, Isaiah makes it clear, and so does the New Testament, the servant of the Lord, Jesus of Nazareth, endured this brutal, horrific murder on our account. He died this death in our place for our sins. And there's this theological term that we use to describe this. So I got to give you a big word alert. Okay. Big word. It's penal substitutionary atonement. Oh no. Three big words in a row. It's terrible. Let's break it down. Think about this with me. That word penal, it's a legal word that refers to the punishment of a guilty person. Substitution, we know that, refers to someone taking the place of another. And atonement just means to cover or pay for sin. So to put it all together, penal substitutionary atonement. You sound smart when you say it. It means that Jesus took the punishment we deserved for our sin in our place. You remember in Romans we learned that there is a price for sin. The wages of sin is death. Because of God's holiness and justice, sin and evil have to be dealt with. They have to be punished or God ceases to be good. So God has anger and wrath 
and judgment towards sin. And you and I being sinners, we deserve that, all of us. Isaiah uses two words here to describe our sin, transgressions and iniquities. Transgression refers to a willful, intentional sin against God. Iniquity refers to the general bent of evil in our hearts. So if sin must be dealt with, and you and I are sinners through and through, then Houston, we have a problem. But Jesus provided the solution. Instead of you and I receiving the fair punishment for our sins, Jesus atoned for those sins by himself taking our place. It should have been us on that cross. Do you know that? Experiencing the wrath of God, that should have been me. But Jesus took my place. And it's interesting, the, the Israelite people, when they heard this, they would have understood the idea of atonement, having your sins covered by another. They knew that in Genesis, when Adam and Eve first sinned in the garden, God killed an animal and took the skin to cover their naked bodies. They knew that in Exodus, when the Israelites were being freed from slavery and freed from Egypt, what did they do? They killed a lamb, sacrificed it, took the blood, painted it over their doorpost, that when death came over, they would be covered by the blood of the lamb. They would know that the, the law they had received from God had this whole system whereby when they sinned, they sacrificed an animal, and the animal would atone for or cover their sin. They knew this concept. This was familiar to them, but what would have been unthinkable? What would have been ridiculous was the idea that instead of an animal dying, a person would do this, much less God. The Messiah? The chosen Savior to die in this tragic way, someone who is God, who is high and lifted up with all authority and power, dying in the place of sinners, that could never happen. There's no way. But it did happen. Exactly as the Lord himself had drawn up and spoken through his prophet Isaiah. And here's the result. Isaiah tells us of the servant suffering in our place we now have peace and healing. By his wounds, we are healed. Notice the very act that led to his death is the very act that leads to our healing. The healing he refers to is spiritual healing, to be made whole and right with God, and that's what we need. As sinners, we need to be made spiritually right to be healed. And Isaiah reminds us one more time why. Look at verse 6. He says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The Bible often compares people to sheep, which is not the animal you would choose to be compared to yourself. Sheep were notoriously dumb and helpless, which is why they needed shepherds around the clock to help take care of them and guide them. So just like sheep, you and I, we, we go astray. We go our own way, and that's a really good picture of what it means to be a lost sinner who needs a Savior. See, we choose. We're not forced. We're not just following along. No, we consciously and willfully go our own way. We refuse to follow God. We refuse to listen to Him. Instead, we turn. We turn away. And this verse makes clear this is all of us. This is everyone. We all do this. We all are straying sheep wandering away from God. And yet the Lord laid on him, the servant, the exalted one, God in human flesh, the iniquity of us all. 
that word laid on does not mean to gently and kindly set. It means to fall on. Our sin fell on Jesus. It crushed him to the point of death. And don't miss this. Who did this to Jesus? Well, the Jewish leaders, we know they, they put Jesus on trial and Pilate sentenced him to death and the people called for his crucifixion and the guards nailed him to the cross. But Isaiah prophesied and it came true. It was the Lord who laid our sin on him. Jesus died not by tragic accident, but by the sovereign, perfect plan of God. This was the plan from the beginning that the servant, the Messiah, would be exalted to the level of God because he was God, but that first he would suffer, that he'd live a life of suffering, that he'd die a horrible death in the place of sinful people, that we might be healed and forgiven. And all of that was made totally clear, spelled out in amazing detail, 700 years before it ever happened. Shows the amazing way of God's word. So let me close now with three takeaways for us this morning from these three verses. Here's the first. Number one, Jesus died for sinners. Jesus did not die for perfect people. He did not die for people who have it all together, for those who have no issues or struggles or problems in their life. He did not die for goody-two-shoes, holy rollers, or perfect little angels. There is only one condition that determines whether or not Jesus died for you. You have to be a sinner. And guess what? Today's your lucky day. Because <laughs> you are one. And I'm one too. And that's who Jesus said he came to save. In fact, if you and I had not sinned, there would have been no reason for Jesus to come and die. We see this over and over again in the Bible. Jesus said in Luke 5, 32, he said, I did not come to call the righteous but sinners. He said in Luke 19, 10, I came to seek and save the lost. Paul wrote this in 1 Timothy 1, 15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Here it is. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. This is the reason Jesus came into the world. Though he was a great teacher, he did not come primarily to teach. Though he was a miracle worker, he did not primarily come to perform miracles. Though he was a great example of love and morality, he did not come primarily as an example. Jesus came for one main reason and one central primary purpose, and that was to die for sinners like me. That was his job. That was the reason God sent him to earth. It was a rescue mission. From day one, he set his face toward the cross. He knew what he had to do, and he went willingly to die for sinners. Listen to me. This fact should shock us. This should startle us. I mean, first off, that God would die. Second, that he would die for people he created. Third, that he would die for sinful people who don't deserve it. That he would give up his own son who lived a perfect life, who deserved nothing but praise and glory, and he would crush him. And that he would do that for people like me who hated him, who rebelled against him, who destroyed his good creation. Why would he do it? What could have motivated God to do this? John 3.16 tells us, for God so loved, what? The world. God loves sinners. 
He desires to save them and give them eternal life, so he made a way to fix our problem. He sent his son as our substitute to die in our place that we might be forgiven and have eternal life and live with him forever. Jesus died for sinners. That's first. Here's our second takeaway this morning, number two. Jesus died for you. Jesus did not die for a nameless, faceless mass of people. He didn't die for a number in a system. No, he died for you in particular. In fact, that was his plan. God knew you before he even created you, before he had even created the world. He knew you, loved you, and wanted to be with you. So he planned to come and save you. And as Jesus walked that road to Golgotha, carrying that weight of the cross on his back, as he hung there, gasping for his final breaths, you were on his mind. He knew he was doing this for you. Do you understand that? Do you feel the weight of that? This means on one hand, Jesus died because of you. Our sin is the reason Jesus had to die. So in a sense, I was there that day. I was in the crowd yelling, crucify him. I held the nails as they drove them into his hands. I mocked and spit on him as he hung there. That was me. It was my sin that held him there. We just sang it. So we've got to feel the weight of this responsibility and understand that the sin is serious. It was so serious that it crucified Jesus. That's the cost of what we've done. But Jesus didn't just die because of you. He also died for you. He knew the seriousness of sin. He knew you were going to blow it. And yet he still chose to die. He took our place, paid our debt that we might walk free. There's been a few times in my life where I've been eating out in a restaurant. And the waiter, he comes up to my table and he says, hey, uh, I just wanted to let you know your meal has been paid for by someone else. And whenever that has happened, my first thought is always, man, I should have ordered the steak. But my second thought is, man, that is really kind that someone would do. Like, I don't, I don't deserve that. I didn't need that. They didn't need to do that. They chose to pay for my, that's so nice. We understand that feeling, that idea of someone else paying what we owe. But imagine what it must be like for someone to pay for your eternity. For someone to give up their life to pay for yours. We don't have to imagine because Jesus has done that. And that includes you. Jesus died for you. No matter what you've done, no matter how terrible and horrible that thing is you did, whether you can forgive yourself or not, he's ready. No matter how many people know, no matter how dark the secret is, no matter how deep the hole is you've dug, no matter how far you've run or how long you've been running, your sin does not disqualify you from Jesus' death. It actually makes you the perfect candidate. Jesus died for you. That's second. Here's third and last thing, last takeaway today. Jesus died for the world. Isaiah prophesied that this servant would take away the iniquity of us all. And Jesus did that. John wrote in 1 John 2, 2. Jesus is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Jesus didn't just die for you or for us, but he died for them too. Even the people you don't like. Even the people who are different than you. The people who believe differently than you. Jesus died for terrorist groups and evil dictators. 
He died for abortionists and child abusers. He died for Muslims, Jews, Buddhists, Hindus, and atheists. He died for Democrats and Republicans, rich and poor, all. Jesus died for all the sins, for all people, for all time, that he might bring those who believe into a relationship with him to know him and enjoy him forever. That's the message of the cross. And here's the question we have to walk away with today. What are we going to do about it? Because here's the deal. De Jesus' death is sufficient for everyone, but it's only efficient for those who believe. We have to respond to what Christ has done. That means we have a choice. To believe and to be saved or to reject and walk away and be condemned. That means the most important question you could answer today, the most important question you could answer in your whole life is this, do I trust in the death of Jesus in my place? Have you come to a place where you've realized you're a sinner, felt the weight of your sin and need to turn away from it? And do you believe that Jesus died to save you, to take your sins away, and are you willing to trust him for your salvation? That is the first and most important way we can respond to the cross. But there's another way. The second way we must respond once you believe, so we got to take this message to the world, to those who don't believe. If this is true, that Jesus died for the whole world, that he's the only way to be saved, then how could we possibly keep this to ourselves? I mean, how could we possibly not tell those who don't know him and will spend eternity in hell apart from him? We have the good news, and it's our responsibility to share it. Jesus in my place. Jesus in your place. Jesus in the place of the world. That's the gospel. What will you do about it? Let's go to God now in prayer.